Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast. I'm Sultan Ghaznawi, your host, and today we will cover a very important topic that has been a major source of concern for LSCs in the United States. Regulatory changes in the labor sector has been affecting both LSCs and translation and interpreting verticals, as well as independent contractors. My guest is Dr. Bill Rivers. He's principal at WP Rivers and Associates and is a longtime advocate and lobbyist for the language industry. A French and Russian speaker, he has been a classroom educator, translator and interpreter, researcher and higher education administrator with time spent in the intelligence community and the private sector as a chief technology officer. Dr. Rivers has served as Executive Director of the Joint National Committee for Languages, Chief Linguist of the National Language Service Corps, and Founding Chair of the Technical Committee F43 on Language Services of ASTM. He's an honorary lifetime member of the Association of Language Companies and received the William Bill Graper Award for the ALC in 2019. Bill, welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast. Thank you, Sultan. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so let me jump right into my first question. Let's start by talking about what got your interest in the language industry and how long have you been involved? It was uh, it was completely accidental, and I think it is for a lot of folks. Um, I was a Russian and aerospace engineering major at the University of Maryland, and I think it was 1988. Someone asked me if I spoke Russian, which was an odd question back then. Right. I said yes, and was I also an aerospace engineer? I said, okay, where is this going? Uh, but it turned out that it was the, the, the brief period between um, Perestroika and Glasnost, you know, the reconstruction, the open, openness in Russia and the fall of the Soviet Union. So there are all of these joint space ventures. And um, NASA Goddard is adjacent to the University of Maryland and they needed interpreters. Um, so I was hired as a freelancer uh, by an agency whose name I don't even recall. I walked in on the morning of and was handed a microphone and told to stand in between the two. Uh, principles and translate their speeches. I see. Well, very interesting. And this was in 88, right? Yeah, I was invited. Uh, I was recruited to be an interpreter for uh, NASA, um, a joint NASA-Soviet Space Institute um, X-ray uh, research satellite that was going to do things uh, uh, in looking at the deep cosmos. Um, and that was my first uh, introduction to the industry. And I've been, I was a freelancer for a good 10 years after that. Joined ATA in the early 90s, ended up getting a PhD in Russian linguistics and going into academic research, uh, then the intelligence community after 9-11, and then the private sector after that. About uh, eight years ago, I was recruited to be a lobbyist at the Joint National Committee for Languages, so I did that for uh, eight years, and since since May, I've been an independent lobbyist and and consultant, uh, mostly now to the language industry. But what what attracted me was completely accidental, like I said. It was, um, here's a you know, here's a job you could do to make some money because you've got a pretty good degree of bilingualism. And that turned into a, a lifelong avocation, if you will. I was the chief technical officer of a small uh, language services company for a few years um, before becoming a lobbyist. Involved in standards since 1993, um, really since the inception of language standards in ASTM and language standards, industrial standards at the national level in the United States. What I like about the industry is it's always changing. It's always dynamic. And we are part of every sector of the global economy. You know, there's not you can, anywhere you go, you're going to you're going to find language service companies. Any any medium or large size company you talk to anywhere in the world is going to depend on language services to make their their goods and services and products available to multilingual, multicultural markets. We're the biggest industry that nobody's ever heard of. We're the oil of the 21st century because without us, nothing happens. These are not lines that I came up with. I, I heard it from Hans Fenstermacher. But it's endlessly fascinating, and it's just it, it's a fun space. Absolutely. So I think what we do is for the greater good. Um, I, you know, I can hold my head up as a lobbyist saying I'm, I'm lobbying for something that is good for the economy, good for society, good for social justice, that imp- 
improves mutual understanding and cooperation across the globe. So, Bill, you led the Joint National Committee in Languages, or JNCL, for about eight years, almost a decade. Tell us, yes. how did you find your time there, and what kind of challenges did you face? So, so I came into JNCL um, and with a charge of bringing the language industry into what had been a very educational-focused lobby. And I think we did that pretty successfully um, in terms of taking an organization and, and really bringing it into the 21st century and did a lot of, you know, back-end infrastructure things and modernized how we did our lobbying and advocacy. And uh, I'm very proud of that. The biggest challenge we had, and it's a, a perennial challenge, and it took me a long time to get my head around this, there's no magic bullet that's going to convince um, policymakers or the culture at large in a, in a place that sees itself as monolithically anglophone, even though it isn't, whether that's, you know, the U.S. or, you know, um, two thirds of Canada, the other third disagrees rather strenuously, I know. Right. Um, you know, the UK, uh, Ireland, Australia, et cetera. Even, even if there are 70 million Americans who go home and speak another language than English, and even if there are significant multilingual, multicultural markets here, you know, just the way the culture thinks of itself, oh, it's English is fine. English is enough. Um, we don't have to learn in another language because everyone else in the world is learning English, which is a not true and B, you know, they don't necessarily get to a level, level of skill where they're going to have useful proficiency or that technology is going to solve it all, right? Um, Google Translate will, will replace human interpreters and translators. And we've heard that line since the first IBM experiments in machine translation, which happened about 10 years before I was born in the mid fifties. Um, so, you know, we all know as professionals that that's not going to happen, that that won't happen. It's completely changed uh, parts of our industry, but still we need bilingual, biliterate professional translators and interpreters. And we need the people who manage them and get them paid and find them assignments. And we need the companies that do all that, uh, that, man that, that, you know, that provide that value to the, to the marketplace. And I think we always will. Very interesting what you just said. Uh, yes, we will always be in demand. The translation uh, translators, um, freelancers uh, in particular, will always be in demand because they're the backbone of our industry. Let's discuss the current challenges related to regulation in the U.S. in particular, facing language service companies or LSEs and also the independent contractors. What does the situation look like right now? There's a context in the United States where we are keenly, keenly aware of um, as a body politic, keenly aware of tremendous economic inequities, right? This intersects with gig economy, so-called gig economy. It intersects with the world of independent contractors right. in the following way, that, that because the United States is the only industrialized democracy that, that requires that the, your benefits in the main be provided by the employer, there is part of the progressive um, politics of the country. Well, if everybody is an employee... They will have access to benefits. Um, that's a it's a very simplified view, and I think it's a very simple, you know, a simplistic view uh, sometimes on the part of the advocates. So there's been a push in the last 15 years or so to classify independent contractors as employees. Now, at the same time, state the, the way we have un unemployment insurance in the states that is done at the state level. So there are 50, 56, 58 states, territories, and associated nations, right? And each one of them is responsible for providing unemployment insurance under the Federal Unemployment Insurance Act. So the state of Maryland has a Department of Labor, and within that has an unemployment insurance office. And every paycheck you get in the states, a penny or two on a dollar, maybe less, goes to the state that you in which you live to fund unemployment insurance. It's pretty skimpy benefits, something like $400 a week on average, and it's not going to really replace your income. Um, and so during the Great Recession, which is, you know, that's now 12 years ago, there these unemployment insurance coffers were drained. And so state unemployment agencies started auditing language service companies, among other high-value-added, highly-paid um, professions composed primarily of independent contractors in order to replenish their coffers. It wasn't really a social justice mission. It was entirely pecuniary. And then that that sort of, got, the word got round, as it were, uh, in particular, in the previous presidential administration under a very, um, very left-leaning Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, who encouraged states to pursue these audits. 
Well, because the amount of money the state gets if you've misclassified someone is a direct percentage of the compensation provided. You know, the, the language industry is a much more attractive target than, say, another industry, um, home health aids or landscaping, where people may or may not be misclassified, but they're paid an awful lot less than what translators and interpreters get. So it's sort of this, this very um, difficult intersection of something that's fiscally attractive to states um, who are always looking for ways of getting our money. And then, you know, and, and there's a whole argument about the social contract there. And, uh, and pushing for social justice for, for a, a class of workers who are seen in the broader public as potentially, um, exploited, you know, gig economy workers. I think we bristle collectively at the notion of the gig economy as applying to language services. It has always been the case that, that we're freelancers in the main, especially right. in translation and in, in, you know, probably 80% of the interpreting world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we were highly educated professionals. Um, this is, um, this is not task rabbit. This is not driving for Uber. Now, all labor is honorable. All, all decent labor is honorable. And, and so that's not to, to malign those companies or those, those spaces. But, you know, we're, we're really part of the knowledge economy and we're more akin to, you know, the way that Silicon Valley, uh, startups will have a whole bunch of independent contractors and so on. Um, or the way that Hollywood operates, where where the people there who are highly skilled at what they do uh, tend to be independent contractors rather than employees. Let me follow up on that. So you mentioned that economic challenges have, uh, in the past, obviously, like in the recession, last recession, caused some of these changes to happen at regulatory level. What is driving these changes now? Uh, can you provide some context? So it, it, all politics being local, the, the context in California starts with a company called Dynamex, which is a uh, last mile delivery company. Um, and a case that was filed against them in Los Angeles County, I believe, uh, back in the aughts, I think 2004, something like that. And it wound its way that they had mis inappropriately, um, misclassified their drivers as independent contractors. Um, drivers had been employees on a Friday. They come in on Monday. They're told they're independent contractors. Wearing the same uniforms, driving the same routes in the company trucks. And whatever the merits of that case was, uh, when it got to the California Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, no, they're, they're they are in fact employees and they revised the California, um, classification scheme for employees versus independent contractors. It's the ABC test and A is, um, financial independence, uh, from the, from the organization that pays you. You can work with multiple clients. B is that the work is done outside of the usual place of business or line of business. And I forget what the C prong was because what's really material is they took the B prong of what was called the Borello test based on an earlier uh, California Supreme Court case and said, no, it can only be outside of the, the usual line of business. It cannot be simply outside of the place of business. And so if you think of, um, you know, an interpreting company that sends interpreters out to, to, um, school board meetings or to hospitals or to courts or to, you know, zoning, zoning board meetings for the town council. Um, the, the way that they were able under the previous California law, the way they were able to classify those interpreters as independent contractors was, was outside of the place of business because they're not showing up at your office, you know, in, in Santa Barbara or Monterey. They're showing up at, at a different location. Well, the Supreme Court nixed that. And then Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez from the San Diego area, um, who is a rising star in the California Democratic Party, uh, latched onto this and said, we'll make that uh, the law of California, and thus was passed Assembly Bill 5 last year. And so we're now in a situation in California where this one court case is then leveraged by the Democratic Party to make everybody an employee albeit with a huge range of exceptions. And I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And I think that is going to spread across the country. This is, this is now sort of baked into progressive politics, um, which is, you know, and we've seen the, the power of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party in the last couple of years, um, even to the extent that uh, the vice, pre- the vice president, uh, vice president Biden, our, our nominee for the Democratic Party, um, has shifted significantly leftward in his policies. He hasn't made a big deal about it, but he has, in point of fact. 
So there's a real chance that should um, should we have a Democratic president and Democratic Senate that that it will be very hard to have, to say the least. There will be laws, a law passed at some point to make everyone an employee. Again, there will be a huge lobbying effort um, to carve out exceptions. And and whatever the merits of it are, the reality is there's there it's it's incomplete. The only benefit you are guaranteed under these changes under the Unemployment Insurance Act is, in fact, unemployment insurance. It does not guarantee you health care coverage. That's a separate legal structure and, again, varies among our 50, you know, 58 states, territories, and associated nations. Um, and it doesn't guarantee retirement. We have Social Security, but if you are looking at, say, a 401k um, or some kind of pension, that that is, again, very much dependent on a complex mm-hmm. interaction of state and federal laws. So the concern we have is that, that I think, philosophically, we're solving um, – we're using the wrong tool to solve a societal problem. And in terms of how the economy operates, it would be incredibly disruptive. Um, when, when you see what's happened in California, where, for example, freelance writers um, and a huge number of people who write for the, the, the mass media are, in fact, freelancers. Whenever you see Special 2 or Special 4 um, in someone's byline, um, they're a freelancer and they can only submit 35 articles a year to any one publication before they, before they become an employee. Um, that's incredibly disruptive. And, you know, given the rates that they're paid, 35 articles does not sustain a living. Um, so, so again, there's, there's, there's a lot of disruption inherent in this. Absolutely. And, 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 and it, it certainly disrupts the, the labor um, model for the language industry. Where again, if you, you know, you t- when we take the surveys, um, you know, the Richard Antoine, who's one of the co-founders of ALC, does an, an occasional survey of freelancers, and eighty percent of them want to remain as freelancers. Absolutely, is the language industry in that case uh, collateral damage? Because there are other industries that are more uh, well positioned for these changes. If any industry, basically, language industry has been supporting linguists by who, by nature, work in, in freelance situations that best fit their expectations of work. Yeah, I, I think collateral damage is, is the right word. We're not the only um, part of the knowledge economy that that would be collateral damage. And, you know, when when you look at the exemptions, like the hairdressers are exempt in California under AB5. There were a number of exemptions passed last year, um, and there are a number of other exemptions being put into law now. The doctors, the real estate agents, et cetera. So there are professions which are, um, let's say, better organized than our sector and uh, better financed in terms of their lobbying and have been able to carve out uh, some exceptions. That's not to say we we aren't working very hard in California and at the national level to push back. Um, we are, and I think we've had some success in uh, thus far in California. It isn't quite everything we want, but we're not done yet there either. Um, but it has been a wake-up call. And I remember Bill Graper, who is, again, one of the co-founders, the late Bill Graper. The of, great Bill Graper, yes, of course. Yeah, and a, a dear friend and mentor and, and uh, you know, raconteur and, and all that. Uh, but he came to me at an ASTM meeting 15 years ago and uh, start shaking, pounding the table and shaking, you know, a sheaf of papers saying, you guys have to pay attention to this independent contractor thing. And I looked at it and said, what on earth? And I think most everyone in the room in language service company, look, what are you talking about? Why, you know, of course we have independent contractors. What's the question? I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. States are going to come after you. They, they have, re- they have realized that there is, um, they can, they can, they can, audit language service companies. Language service companies um, are poorly prepared for this, and and they realize they can make money off of language service companies to be crass about it, but there was a lot of that going on. And it took a while for, I think, for the, for the industry to understand. And the change in ALC was maybe four years ago, where enough of us had been audited and enough of us had been through the ringer with, with our state departments of employment or state departments of labor to realize yeah, we, we, we need to organize. And then Dynamex just was a, that was a, a that was an H bond that just, that was an explosion that, that just changed everything in California and put us all on notice that this is coming at the national level, this effort to turn everybody into an employee, whether it makes any sense or not, 
it's going to come at the national level. Let's talk about the AB 2257 bill, which was passed uh, by the California St- uh, Senate Labor Committee this week, actually. It will be hotly debated on the Senate floor in the state of California. Please explain mm-hmm. what this regulation is all about and why should language service companies be concerned? So AB 2257 is uh, a makeup bill. It's, they're trying to fix some of the um, infelicities in AB5. So essentially, it's creating additional types of exemptions, additional categories of exemptions to AB5 in terms of allowing um, allowing companies to engage independent contractors. Where we stand now is, yes, it did pass the, the California Senate Labor Committee on Wednesday, and it next goes to the California Senate's Appropriations Committee. Um, we are working very hard behind the scenes to um, continue to amend it, and I hope to have positive things to report on that early next week. Um, but the text isn't out, and so it's very delicate right now. The the Where we stand is that interpreters, certified interpreters, can be engaged as independent contractors by referral agencies. That's problematic in... in um, a couple of different ways. First is that uh, the recent study by NIMSI of certification among the California language workforce showed that less than less than thirteen percent um, at have any certification. Whether it's an ATA um, translation certification, it's only about four hundred and fifty. Um, a CCHI, a CMI, a state court, a federal court certification, or any other third party certification, and a small number of IEC certifications out there for for conference translators and the like. Um, and moreover, the certification exists in a very limited range of languages. Uh, Spanish is over, the overwhelming language. And when you look at federal uh, court certification, there's the, the federal exam is offered only in Spanish. It was offered once in Navajo and once in Haitian Creole, both of those now more than 20 years ago. So if you're going to insist on a certified interpreter, well, there, it turns out there are three certified Tagalog interpreters in all of California. There's a huge Tagalog population in California. Right. How are they going to get language access? That language access, which is itself mandated by Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, by Section 1557 of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, you know, Obamacare, yes. um, and by the, the, the Federal Court Interpreting uh, Act, by state law. So... How is California going to square that circle? And their languages, you know, there are no Armenian certifications. There are no Ukrainian or Polish certifications because it doesn't exist for those languages. And given the difficulty of creating a certification, the cost of creating a certification test and the requirements for something that is valid as an occupational test in the United States means that, that you need a pretty robust sample size to develop a test. And that sample size, in many cases, would exceed the number of interpreters out there, or it would take so long to to accumulate that that it's 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 just not feasible to develop a certification test. Um, so that's the first issue we have. And the second is we're not quite sure what on earth a referral agency means. It seems to be um, a misunderstanding of what language service companies do, where it may look as though we are doing nothing more than finding qualified translators and interpreters and matching them with with end clients. But in point of fact, we add other value, and and that varies from vertical to vertical. Um, if you look at what an LSC that's involved in translation, localization, globalization does, um, that could be part of a large, complex project um, with multiple deadlines and deliverables, and lots of technology that the individual linguist is never going to be engaged with, or certainly not with all of it. Um, and, and with interpreters, there's a significant issue of being able to match. How do you find the right person? How do you ensure that they will um, perform? And, and how do you how do you ensure that the client will be satisfied? And this is sort of reducing us down to the babysitters club, which is a, a a series that's out now that my, my daughter likes is is a bit um, reductionist. Now I don't I'm not going to say this deliberate misunderstanding on the part of the California Assembly, and there are lots of other um, professions that have been lumped in with referral agency, but I have the sense that they're kind of making it up as they go, um, uh, or 
we're using some existing structure that is is somehow um, gives them uh, looks easy to understand. The, the referral agency label may not mean anything in practice, but it does it does kind of stick in the you know stick in the craw a bit, as it were, because wait a minute, we're language service companies. We're you know we're more than a referral agency. The the real concern though is the limitation to certified uh, linguists. That's again, there's a, a charge out there, and it's in a public document from the labor committee that if we take certification out, we are somehow undercutting um, certified people. And the reality of the market is, it's very hard to get an end user, whether it's a healthcare system or a law firm, to pay extra for a certified person because there just aren't enough of them to make a difference in the market. Um, the there are places, and I think translation in particular, where that ATA certification actually does open up a different type of clientele based on you know the, the higher order of, of pay. Um, but because the ATA certification is so hard to get and is, is a very hard marker, but I'm not sure that in, um, in any kind of public sector in, in language work where in the end the taxpayer is paying and um, or the health insurer is paying and the the end user's interest is in minimizing costs, is in minimal compliance, you know, say f- f- compliance with the law and the regulations and and controlling costs. Then, then it's just very hard to argue for a premium for someone. So um, the only the only place that it exists is in the federal courts. So from what I'm hearing, uh, this regulation or this change will present or cause disparities and inequities in, in accessing services that are beyond language. So language is an enabler, actually. Right. So you think of the, the, the full range of, of services under under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act and Executive Order 13166 of August 24th, 2000, um, which interprets the prohibition on national origin discrimination as extending to a prohibition on discrimination based on limited English proficient status. And it also, there are also a number of Supreme Court um, cases underpinning that, 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 that further um, strengthen that interpretation of Title VI. Any, any recipient of federal funding, however far removed, whether directly from the government or through an intermediate, intermediate agency, such as a state health department or a state social services department or a local health agency, um, is required to provide language access to those who don't speak English. And, that's now pretty well understood um, 20 years on, but it touches every part of state and local government. There's, it's, every agency gets something from the federal government, right? The, the highway department, the roads department gets some money from the Department of Transportation. So if there's a hearing on putting a new interchange in, in an area where there's an LEP population, they have to provide you know, documents um, and have to provide interpreting as required. Um, every, every school district gets federal money. And so therefore school board meetings and so on. So the, there are a lot of sectors that have grown out of this. Um, healthcare is one. Social services is another. Um, local government meetings is yet another. Education, both in terms of things like school board meetings, parent teacher meetings, but also the IEP meeting, the individualized education plan meeting, which is if a child has special needs under federal law, they must have an individualized education plan, which must be reviewed at least um, biannually, at least twice a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and that often means that you know, because our LEP population is overrepresented in demographic terms among special needs students, that the parents don't speak English. And so therefore, you have to have an interpreter at these meetings who is deeply knowledgeable about the the education terminology and the legal and administrative frameworks of special education, which is very different than someone going into healthcare or someone who's doing um, social services. You know, so there are people who move among these domains, but the healthcare certification isn't going to address. Uh, it, it, it doesn't touch you know, education. It doesn't touch conference interpreting. Um, and there are a lot of other domains that, that we're concerned where, there, no certification exists in that domain, regardless of language. Um, and there simply aren't enough certified interpreters. There aren't enough interpreters, period, in California to meet the current needs in some languages. And certainly by taking, you know, 85% of them out of the discussion, 
then that's only going to make it worse. Um, and then the challenge in, in languages of lesser diffusion is that your your healthcare um, system may not need a, a, a full time or half time interpreter in Shamoro or um, in Sudanese or Somali, depending on the location and the population. So that interpreter, of course, ends up having multiple clients, probably doing a lot of OPI work, um, a lot of remote work in order to make a living. Um, and that system then has to make a decision. Well, how do we, how do we meet that language need? They're still on the hook with the federal government. And, and I'm not, I, it, our, one of our frustrations with the General Assembly in California is they haven't addressed this issue at all. We keep saying, look, you're, you're cutting out a huge amount of the workforce and potentially, um, and in fact, very likely introducing significant civil rights violations into the state, um, a state that's 40% LEP, um, some stat spectacular number and, and hundreds of languages spoken. And you're, you're just blithely trundling on like this is actually very frustrating. Um, and it's 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 counterproductive to the stated goal of social justice for the the workforce because you're you're going to damage the whole population of the state. It's indeed uh, counterproductive and uh, actually worrisome as well. Are there other states that have uh, enacted this type of a regulation or looking to do so? So uh, Massachusetts has a law and has had for some time that anyone who is permitted or suffered to work, and that's uh, one of these, you know. Uh, Phrase, uh, phrases from British common law, I suppose, is in fact an employee. And so that's um, the one state that went all the way. We are looking at potentially New York, um, New Jersey doing this, but um, the the reality is in New Jersey, the, they looked at what happened with the first year of the implementation of AB5 and decided to hold off on changing their um, independent contractor and uh, employee structures because of the because of the disruption in California. So they want they want to see how it works in California and and, and try to make a more measured uh, decision in New Jersey, from what I understand. Um, but that may all be overtaken should uh, Vice President Biden become our president, and should we have a Democratic Senate, that, that this will be part of you know a much larger agenda on on equity and fairness in the workplace. I, I want to stipulate that in, in my experience in the language industry, we follow the law. We treat our people well. We work very hard to ensure that if someone needs to be an employee because they are working basically full time as a Spanish healthcare interpreter on one of our contracts, you know, we deal with that. Um, but we're not, you know, I, I don't think that we're using in, independent contractor status as a way to squeeze the workforce and make more money. I don't see that occurring. And it, the system doesn't really work like that. Indeed, actually, uh, I agree with you that our industry is not designed to circumvent labor laws. And uh, obviously, we, you know, all companies abide by regulations and, and these regulations are changing. So coming back to your point, do you see a national movement in the United States to change labor laws and regulations in this direction? It clearly affects many industries. Who will be the victims? Are there any winners at all? Um, I don't really think there are any winners. Um, the you know, you have huge companies out there like like Uber and Lyft, and part of their business model is predicated on on the independent contractor, and they would, you know, certainly take a big hit with increased costs. But I don't see any industry. You think of um, you think of people who are independent architects or uh, management consultants or um, career coaches. You know, there's a lot of of you know, high-level professional, high-value-added work done by independent contractors. Um, and if, in principle, everyone becomes an employee, that would change. That would change um, huge sectors of the economy. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, right? So, um, Bill Graper took us in once to talk to the National Association of uh, Real Estate Brokers. I don't, I don't have the exact title, right? But um, these are the people who own the real estate brokerages, and and. Our concern was just laughed off. It's never going to touch us. You can't get elected, you know, sheriff in, in Peoria, Illinois, without one of one of my guys contributing to your campaign. Right. You know, it was very, very sort of 
brutal reminder of, um, you know, the power of, of money and politics. Okay. I'm not complaining about that necessarily, but, um, we know that there will be, um, there will be very powerful interests that do get an exemption if this goes forward. Um, but we expect that to be the case. Um, and so we have to make sure that we're inserted in, in there too, that say, wait a minute, this isn't, again, we're not task rabbit. We're not, you know, we're not Uber or Lyft and, and I'm a big fan of Uber made a huge difference to, you know, the DC area in terms of the quality of, of transportation. You know, transportation. <laughs> um, and that competition has been good. It forced, it forced the DC, uh, taxi commission to require meters, for example, <laughs> you know, and require that, that credit cards be accepted. I mean, it, it was, it was like going back in time, you know, 80 years if you took a cab in DC and in, in terms of how they operated and, you know, probably 30 years in terms of the, the, the actual cars themselves. Um, and, and Uber forced a change there. And so, you know, competition can be good. Now the regulations also matter and the, you know, that's part of the social contract. And I'm not at all espousing that, you know, we have some kind of, you know, unfettered free market competition. Um, you know, I think we have to have sensible regulations, uh, you know, for our industry. And, and again, if, if when you look at the, you know, the ATA compensation survey, understanding that there's a self-selection there because of, you know, these are people who are inclined to join the ATA and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, a prorated annual, annual earnings of, of, you know, $80,000 or whatever it is. I don't have the, I should have the latest statistics in front of me. Um, that's, that's a middle-class living in a lot of America. And lots of, lots of linguists can do better than that and, and do, uh, earn more than that. Um, and so, it's all by way of saying that I, I really firmly believe that we, we treat our workforce well in this industry. Um, and, and where there are challenges in terms of payment, in terms of rates, it's often from an end client, as I said, that is treating languages as a downstream commodity, as a problem to be solved, that, that it is, um, a, they're, they're buying languages as, as language services as if they're buying, you know, supplies for the hospital. Um, and when you do that, when you, when you don't treat the, the culturally and linguistically appropriate delivery of your product, whatever it is, your service, whatever it is, as an investment in that service and then track the return on that investment, then you do get the situation where, you know, especially in large bureaucracies, um, and especially in public sector where we're just going to try to minimize the cost. That's, that's where a lot of the challenges we see in the work, in the workforce and in our own contracting come from is dealing with a customer that really doesn't care about quality. They're not, the system doesn't make them care about quality. Let me ask you this question, uh, Bill, because, um, it seems like, at least in my opinion, there is some sort of a bias now against independent contractors. It's even making its way to the regulation now. Why is that? They play an important role in the translation interpreting in so many other areas of language business. I, I think there's been a very successful campaign to paint the gig economy as, uh, as as bad as as damaging to uh, the rights of of the individual um there the but the gig economy offers you freedom to choose what you want to do right right but it doesn't offer health care it doesn't offer retirement and and so on and i think that's um it doesn't necessarily offer the security of uh you know of a 40 hour a week paycheck um, although this current crisis should remind everyone that that security was, was, um, uh, you know, artificial or um, illusory, right? Uh, where the United States is now at something like 35% unemployment. Um, but there is, you know, there's a, I think in the broader culture, this idea that, you know, you got your job at, the factory or at the office and you spent 30 or 35 or 40 years there and retired from it. That world has been, I've, I've been working as a professional for more than 30 years and that world never existed for me. So that's going back to the eighties, but 
Um, and I don't think it can be rebuilt through legislative fiat. I think I, and the frustration that, that, you know, I have as an advocate and as a former, you know, C-level person in a company and as a researcher and all this other, all the other parts of my career is that, that, um, we're not necessarily addressing the world as it is. And if you want to make it better, you at least have to start where you are instead of harking back to some nostalgic, um, some nostalgic era that disappeared were, long before most certainly. of us were born. Yeah. And, and the reality is too, that, that if you look at say social security in the United States, farm workers were excluded, domestic workers were excluded when that was created. The same with Medicare and Medicaid. Now there've been improvements to that, but, um, there were huge sectors of the economy that were never included in that. And so it's, it's, um, I'm getting, you know, veering into the, the, the social contract again, our industry provides meaningful professional middle-class work in the United States for approximately 250,000 people. And that is at risk if, if this goes forward, because there's, there's just no conceivable way that that Karakal Pak Waker and Uzbek interpreter is going to be somebody's full-time employee. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, and that doesn't work. And that, and that works, you know, that applies for a lot of Spanish interpreters too. Uh, absolutely. So, Bill, I was going to ask you this. Uh, uh, if we were to lump the independent contractors together, I think that would be unfair because you're looking at all kinds of skilled and unskilled, educated, uneducated people, uh, all treated the same way. Do you think that we need to dig a little bit deeper and, for example, treat translators and interpreters differently yes. compared to drivers? Oh, yes. Yes. And that's the whole idea of these exemptions and the argument that we've been making consistently. They should be treated like the, the, the lawyers and the architects and the doctors and the visiting nurses and the other highly skilled professions because, because we are a highly skilled profession. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Do these regulatory changes affect delivery and cost of services? I mean, now if you're looking at it from uh, the perspective of the end client, do they end up paying more? That's a, so what I think happens is the end client says, no, we're not paying more, which means the workforce makes less because those costs are fixed and they have to be paid. The workforce will make less and the companies will make less. And, and we've actually seen some data to, to suggest that in other states um, where, where this has happened. And it will un- undoubtedly it will affect the availability of language services, um, especially outside of major metropolitan areas and especially in languages of lesser diffusion that people will not, will not have the access they need. So there, it will definitely adversely affect. Adversely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. So we, again, we are in the middle of one of the worst healthcare crises or um, this pandemic that humankind has ever experienced. Is it the right time to debate these regulatory changes or enforce them? If these changes were to happen across the board, what would it mean for our fight against so this pandemic? There's a political saying, never waste a crisis, you know. <laughs> I've heard that. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, it, it isn't, but I don't think that matters. And, the fact that this debate was ongoing before the crisis hit, you know, the, the, the law, the, the bill was in motion in California General, General Assembly before it hit means that it's just kind of rolling along. It's got its, its inertia and its momentum. So, um, there are anecdotal, um, stories of language access challenges in the, in this crisis in the United States. And we're starting to see some more, uh, systematic data hit the, um, you know, the, the peer-reviewed press, especially the medical press, medical journals about the about challenges of language access and adverse outcomes without language access, specifically related to this crisis. So, yeah, we're, we've made that point too, and we, we will continue to make that point. Okay, so let's talk about the perspective of the independent contractors. What do they think? Are they in favor of these regulations like AB 2257 in the state of California or AB 5 uh, for that matter? If not, why not? So, they're the majority are not in favor because, again, they want the the ability to work independently from multiple clients to negotiate their own rates, to accept or reject assignments, which, again, as an employee, if you reject an assignment, is an independent contract. If I reject an assignment, that doesn't necessarily mean that my relationship with your language services company is severed. Um, you may come back to me later. Right. I can say, yep, I'm full up or it's too far away or I'm not really comfortable with it, whatever. Right. You don't even necessarily have to give a reason. As an employee, you can be fired. You refuse to do the work, you'd be fired because it's, you're going to be under contract to do the work. The majority, the vast majority of interpreters and translators want to 
uh, remain independent, and they have supported the coalition of professional translators and interpreters in California. Coptic have supported that organization generously. There is a small minority, very vocal minority, that would like to be employees. Um, they have their reasons for that, in, in particular having to do with the availability of, uh, of, of benefits, and they are most often um, already working full-time in Spanish in healthcare settings. And uh, so that's been a challenge in that there's a, a vocal minority that, that the proponents of AB5 have seized upon. Um, but the reality is, and I think we've demonstrated this very well in California, in Washington State two or three years ago, in other states that, in fact, the workforce is happy as it is and prefers this arrangement. You have represented, um, you know, our industry and advocated on behalf of the language uh, industry for years in, in Washington. What do you think is the best approach to address this this problem as it is right now? We have a really good case to make, and we, we make that case, and we find uh, we find folks, particularly in the Democratic side, particularly in the Senate, who agree with us and and enlist their support. We've got data. The data make you credible. We've got good stories. The stories make you memorable. I, I think I'm actually optimistic that we can make a difference at a national level on on the independent contractor um, employee classification question. And there are lots of other things that, again, you know, with healthcare reform coming up, there's the possibility of getting federal reimbursement for for medical for language access in, in Medicare, Medicaid, and other uh, federally covered programs. There's partial reimbursement. I think 11 states take it. But to fully reimburse that could be a game changer for that vertical, where now this is not just a cost that can be minimized. It's something that we can charge to the federal government, to the, to the insurers. Smart healthcare systems already see language access as an investment because they get better outcomes. They spend less money overall. They get better patient satisfaction. There are incentives built into Obamacare for patient satisfaction and for outcomes. And so we're already seeing some smarter healthcare systems uh, buy into this. And so that's one example. And we've had some success in the last few years at improving federal contracting. The federal government is now, uh, is, it is now illegal in the federal government to use price-based acquisitions methods, um, such as lowest price technically acceptable or reverse auctions for the acquisition of knowledge-based services and languages. Language services are defined as a knowledge-based service by the federal government. So um, so that was a, a major success for people selling into the federal space where we hope to see less of the the price, you know, price-driven lowest bidder methods that have caused so much trouble for for on major contracts in the Department of Defense, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security. Um, because low bid you'd never automatically take a low bid if you were redoing your bathroom. Right. Of course. You, 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 there's a, a trade off there that you would make. But, you know, much of the last 10 years, the federal government was taking the lowest bids on language services. And we were able to change that. We had uh, two laws, two, two amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act in 2016 and 2018 to change that. And now we're seeing, um, we're seeing, we're seeing it positively enforced in the direction we want. And that's been a big, uh, a big success story. There are other, there are other things in the federal arena as well that, that you know, we want to work on that, that get into really deep into you know, prevailing wages and how how that affects um, contracts and things like that. Um, but the big the big challenge is going to be the 1099 W two, and the big opportunity will be reimbursement for healthcare interpreting. I think it's time for language companies to band together and rally for support. But where where do you think this effort should start? So um, I think it I think it will start in ALC and. Um, People who have questions about that can contact contact the ALC and contact uh, President Rick Montezana or contact uh, Kathleen Diamond, the treasurer, if they're interested. Um, I wish it would be more forthcoming, but we'll start in the ALC, I'm sure of that. My company is a member of ALC, and we are big proponents of uh, the ALC's uh, agenda. I know that the Association of Language Companies, or ALC, has been very vocal. What is the direction these associations, including ALC, are taking when it comes to these regulatory uh, labor law changes? The industry has to get together. It has to get, it has to be organized. I think the ALC, um, is fantastic. I've enjoyed every event, every engagement. You know, I, I'm an honorary lifetime member. Somebody clearly made a mistake with that. Um, I've spoken at 
I think every unconference and every ALC conference going back, you know, 10 or 12 years from before I was at JNCL and now afterwards. Um, but it's not big enough. Companies have to join and it's, they have to join at the national level. Right. And then depending on the state, we may need to organize at a state level to fight off these chain, these, these, these challenges. Um, other industries do this, but you know, we're, we're kind of, we're in this weird spot where language services have to be one of the oldest professions, right? As long as humans have traded ideas and culture and, and, you know, genetic material and, and products and goods, they have had, there has to be communication was involved. Yes. Communication. We've always needed interpreters and, and, and translators. But as an industry, we're still in a space where we're, we're maturing. We're trying to catch up to some of the other industries that have been around. Um, that are that are built themselves in a way to to face the public on the one hand and to face the government on the other hand. I think we're, we've made tremendous progress in the last generation. You know, you look at the way that ASTM F43, the American Standards Committee, has has matured and what it's done. The way that ISO uh, TC37, especially Subcommittee Five, has um, has emerged in the last ten years. We've got some really good things going on. And I think the lobbying has gotten much better, much stronger. But it needs people need to commit to it. They need to invest in ALC, and they need to invest in the advocacy. Let's take a look at the macro uh, picture here. At, at, at what is the economic impact of how these labor regulations shape future of the independent contractor and freelance uh, freelancer segment of the workforce, uh, in particular in the U.S.? I think we're going to see reduced um, earnings. As I said, um, for both the companies and the workforce, because we we really, especially especially for those um, interpreters that that serve the public sector, there's just not any way to pass those costs on to the end user. Um, so that comes out of our hides collectively, um, and I think there's a real challenge, a real possibility that there will be less work available because because of the requirement for certification that California has. Mm-hmm. If you're not certified as an individual, or if you're if if your language service company cannot provide certified individuals, you don't get the job. Mm-hmm. Um so I think in the in the short term that could be really damaging. People are going to make less money and that's that affects the workforces as as much as it affects the companies. There is no winners in, in this situation. I mean there are no winners. There are no winners. There is power in, in numbers. What is your message for US-based, in particular uh, California-based language companies? What action would you like them to take? I'd like them to support Coptic because Coptic is leading the fight in Sacramento. Um, and then US, US-based companies, if they have business in California, should support Coptic. And language companies in the US should join ALC and support ALC's advocacy efforts. Absolutely. Uh, if people in our industry want to learn more about these issues and how to take part in shaping this dialogue, where do you suggest them to go? So ALC has some resources on its advocacy page, and we're going to be um, beefing that up substantially in the coming months. Uh, the Joint National Committee for Languages, uh, languagepolicy.org, also has uh, some resources on its advocacy pages where you can you can see the specific issues. And then I also encourage, if you're a business owner, look at, if you're a small business, look at the National Federation for Independent Businesses. We have a very good relationship with them, and it's good to have, you know, powerful friends. Um, and in fact, I, I'm quite proud that we're the ones, the language industry is the ones that, that brought the 1099 W-2 issue, the independent contractor employee issue to the attention of the National Federation of Independent Businesses. And then your Chamber of Commerce, because they also have significant you know, significant voice in, um, in local, state, and national politics, and is it's a, a great networking opportunity. And I, in, in, in talking about advocacy, it's, it's that's I want to I want to really stipulate for for ALC and for um, associations like it that networking is really powerful. You need to have peers you can talk to and uh, you know break bread with, have a beer with, whatever it is, um, and 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 learn from each other um, and you know, exchange ideas. And I've seen new, new business ventures start. I've seen, you know, mergers and, and sales happen because of conversations that were struck up at an ALC on conference, for example, many times over or an ALC conference. So that's a really powerful reason to join beyond the advocacy is you get, you get a community, you know, 
um, it can be isolating in a business that, that the broader public doesn't understand and often doesn't see, right? People right. see interpreters. They see, you know, people are generally aware of sign language interpreters and they see interpreters at other meetings. People often have no idea if the website that they're looking at has been localized or translated from another language. And so it's sometimes you have to, you spend a lot of time explaining what the language services industry is. Um, and, and I think that can be isolating if you're, if, if you don't have a peer network. Absolutely. So speaking of ALC and the events, I, I immensely enjoy all ALC events. I, I try not to miss any of the conference, but unfortunately, COVID-19, everything is changing. Uh, everything is going virtual and the ALC conference is coming up. And, and you're very passionate about these issues that we discussed today. Are you going to be speaking yes, on this topic in any yep. events? I'll be, at the, I'll be part of the virtual summit. Okay. So yep. and yep. everyone will have an opportunity to hear your thoughts on the subject. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. I think it's next month, right? Yeah, it's the end of next month. I'm really excited about it. Um, it'll be interesting because it, I've, I've been part of three or four big virtual events and there's a, you know, there's a, a democratization that happens, like people who wouldn't normally travel, uh, you know, cause that can be expensive, um, can participate as well. So that's a positive. Um, but I do miss the in-person interactions. You know, that's one of the hardest things about this crisis is, seeing people over zoom and having a, a, a beer over zoom isn't the same as doing it in person, you know? Um, and I, I really miss that. I have a lot of friends out there um, that I miss, you know? Okay. Well, Bill, we are reaching the end of uh, our interview, but I'm going to ask you one last question. How should people get in touch with you if they want to help in driving the translation industry concerns? They can email me, um, william.p.rivers at gmail.com. And they can also reach out to the ALC itself, to the, to um, Kathleen Diamond and to Rick Antizana. Um, those are the two key people right now um, in terms of pushing advocacy. Uh, Susan Amarino is also the vice president. It's not a good person that you know. But, um, but, you know, reach out to the ALC, reach out to me, and we can hook you up. Okay. Well, thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation with you, uh, Bill. I hope that we can uh, garner more support and move this issue to raise more noise, basically, because I think there are lots of translation companies that do not know what is going on and how it will impact them. Yep. So you're doing yep. great work. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Well, thank you, Sultan. It's a great pleasure to talk today. Okay. Thank you. Normally, I review three products that are applicable and useful to LSCs. Today, given our topic of discussion, I have decided to review three platforms where LSCs can join hands and support each other and benefit from the incredible volume of shared knowledge. The first platform for LSCs to congregate and network is the Association of Language Companies. Based in the United States, with an international reach, the ALC has been a vocal advocate for language services companies for almost two decades. Run by a team of volunteer LSC executives, this association has accomplished a lot. ALC is comprised of small to medium-sized LSCs and facilitates discussions and collaboration among its members. It welcomes translation, interpreting, sign language, and language training as well as any other service provider within the larger language industry. The ALC annual conference and unconference events are great places to network and connect with peers and learn about the industry. I rank ALC as a 10 out of 10 given the great work it does and the value for its members. Next, I'm going to talk about the Globalization and Localization Association, or GALA as abbreviated. It is an international association of language stakeholders from both buyer and seller side and everything in between. GALA's annual conference is well attended and offers great networking opportunities to its members. This association also offers its members many resources such as conference videos, webinars and recordings, online forums, standards initiatives and several other. I rank GALA 10 out of 10 for everything that it offers to its membership. The American Translators Association is one of the oldest associations of its kind in the world with over 10,000 members across 103 countries which includes translators, interpreters, project managers, web and software developers, language company owners, hospitals, universities and government agencies. ATA offers its membership to individuals and organizations. It offers its members an annual conference, certification exam for translators in 29 language combinations, professional development and honors and awards program, specialty divisions, local groups, and client education. ATA is primarily geared towards translators but welcomes translation companies as members. I rank ATA also as 10 out of 10 for the great work it does for its members and promoting our industry.
that is it for our today's episode we had great conversation and bill rivers so eloquently described this current state of labor regulations that are affecting the translation and interpreting industries i think there is a call to action for all us-based lscs to learn about these changes coming your way and take part in the movement through alc and other fora that is all the time we had for today make sure to subscribe to the translation company talk podcast on your favorite platform until next time Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.